pray together this morning. Father, we come to you uh, knowing that the text in front of us that we just heard read is a heavy one. Uh, We come to you this morning asking for your spirit to work and move amongst the, the teaching of your word, knowing that your word has always been given to us and its intention for us is to lead us into a fuller understanding of your goodness, your grandeur, your greatness, your holiness, which which inevitably results in our good. And so, God, I pray that we would cast aside emotions, uh, cast aside worldly or cultural ways in which we view marriage and divorce and help us to see you and to understand your intention, your design for marriage, which is a beautiful reflection of Christ's love for his church. May we uphold the institution of marriage as something that is good and great and that points to Jesus and that furthers the kingdom of heaven. And so, God, in this, these moments here before us, God, may we, may we humble ourselves, may we listen to you, and may you do a work in us, God, for our good, for your glory. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, welcome back to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I've loved our time in the Psalms this past summer, uh, but I am really excited to get back into the Gospel of Mark again, and uh, we are hitting the ground running uh, today with this text from Mark chapter 10. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, uh, this is probably one of the hardest sermons I've had to write, at least in the last year or two, uh, and, and the main reason for that is there's a lot going on. Uh, there's a lot going on in this text, there's a lot of emotions that, that we, we, we bring to the text, and, and so what we want to do, first and foremost, is we want to stay true to the text. Uh, we want to hear what God has to say, we want to we hear and we want to discern the intention that Mark had in, in writing this and including this teaching that Jesus had uh, as he included in this narrative in his gospel, and so we want to stick to this, but at the same time understand that there's a lot of things that we bring to the table here. There's a lot of brokenness in, in our lives, a lot of baggage in our lives, a lot of things that we're bringing in here this morning of broken homes and divorce and unhealthy marriages. And so we want to we wanna rightly teach this, we want to rightly understand this. And so uh, the, the task in front of me this, this week has been, and, and to be honest, I knew we were going to be in Mark 10 back in May as we were, we were uh, crafting this all out. And so I've been really reading through this and studying through this all throughout the summer as well, because what I want to do is, in 35 minutes, uh, hit this from a, a high level, but at the same time, I know we also have a lot of ground-level things that we want to deal with, and so I'm trying to navigate all of that here this morning, and so I know at the end, th- there might be some in here that have still questions and struggles here working through, and so we want to serve you in that way. We want to walk with you through that, through that in whatever way that we can, but we want, to, we want to preach the text and the text before us, knowing that's like we said, it's for our good. It's for our good. It's for God's glory. So let's work through this. Now, I won't do this often, but since we've had a three-month break from the Gospel of Mark, and actually because it's actually good for us to understand uh, really Mark's intention, where he's been leading us through up to this point to even better understand Mark 10, we're going to do a little bit of review this morning quickly as, as quickly as I can uh, so we're remembering where we are in this gospel. So uh, if you remember, the first eight chapters of Mark are, are asking really one single question. The question that Mark is posing is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so if you think of the first eight chapters as kind of like we're walking up a mountain toward the top. And so the further that we, 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 we ascend the mountain, the, the clearer the view becomes, right? And so the higher we get, the better and clearer 
the view of that question, who is Jesus? And so in Mark chapter 1, right from the beginning, Jesus begins his public ministry by going around the region, proclaiming the gospel, and saying these words. It says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus begins his public ministry, preaching the coming of the kingdom of God. So sin has reigned and has ruled over God's creation for far too long. And the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of humanity is not how things were ever intended or designed to be in God's creation. And so Jesus is stepping into this, this mess and he's ushering in the kingdom, which is God's reign, God's rule over God's people. But the kingdom of God is not going to be realized or is not going to be established the way that people expect or that the way people would think it to happen. See, the people in this time were hoping for an earthly king to come and to topple Rome and to then establish this, this reign on earth. But Jesus is going to continue to teach and show that, no, the kingdom of God is actually going to come not through conquering Rome. It's actually going to come through suffering. It's going to come through my death. And, and that, that the kingdom of God is not this temporary earthly kingdom that God's initiating, but it's going to be a, a heavenly one. And so the picture here at the very beginning of Mark 1 is, is murky for those that are listening to Jesus. It's not, it's not clear at all. And so the next eight chapters are seeking to, to bring this kingdom of God and the lordship of Christ and who he is into clearer view as we ascend the mountain, so to speak. And so Jesus begins to teach and he begins to heal. He's showing his power over sickness and death and disease and sin. And so in Mark 2, Jesus forgives the sins of a, a paralytic man, which causes the religious leaders to, to lose it. They ask the question as they see him say these words, your sins are forgiven. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They don't understand that even in their questioning and their disgust of what Jesus just did, that they're actually answering the question of who is Jesus. He's God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh, come to identify with sinful humanity, yet with himself without sin. In Mark 3, Jesus establishes a new family. Remember, the kingdom of God is God's reign over God's people. In Mark 3, we see this, this, this beginning of this establishment of this new family underneath the reign and rule of God. So in Mark 3, when, when his mother and his brothers come to see Jesus, and Jesus is surrounded by a, a large crowd, and people come to Jesus and say, your mom's here, your brothers are here, they want to see you. What's Jesus say to them when they say, your, your mother and brother are looking for you? Jesus says this in Mark 3. He looks at those around him that are listening to his teaching and say, here are my mother. My brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's an establishment he's showing of a new family, a new people. This is God's kingdom being established, God's reign, his rule over God's people, a new and better way to, uh, of life as God has intended it to be in, in relationship with him. In Mark 4, Jesus reveals his power over creation when he calms a storm with his words. That, that text drew us back to the, the, the creation narrative in Genesis 1 where God creates and speaks the world into existence. And so Jesus reveals his deity, that he is God, through his words to creation, and creation listens. In Mark 5, Jesus shows his power over evil and the demonic forces that were ruling the world when he casts out thousands of demons from a man possessed. Once again, we're seeing the kingdom of God coming, God's reign, his rule over the powers of this world. In Mark 5 as well, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. If what had been seen in Jesus' ministry up to that point wasn't strong enough evidence to begin revealing who he is, 
This here shows the true nature of Christ, that not even death itself has any power over him. We're getting higher up that mountain, a clearer view of who Jesus is. Yet even with this clarity and even the, as he's revealing who he is through his works and his miracles and his word, yet not all are believing and not yet not all are accepting of who he is. Many follow Jesus just for the show. They want to see amazing things day after day, but they don't want to submit to him as Lord. They don't want to follow him. Many are there just to receive even miracles themselves, but even they don't have any intention to submit to him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus fed the 5,000, many came back the next day, not for Jesus, but for more food. They missed the point. They missed Jesus. They're missing who he is. And so throughout the first eight chapters, Jesus was constantly facing conflict as well with these religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. A conflict that we see beginning here in Mark 10. In fact, all the way back actually in chapter 3, after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, which in the Pharisees' minds was the most grotesque evil one could do. You're working, you're violating the Sabbath, you're not keeping it holy. And Jesus heals a man, does good on the Sabbath. And it says in Mark 3 that from that point forward, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. That's the mission of the Pharisees from that point forward. How do we destroy this man? Remember what I just said a few moments ago that the Jewish people, they were looking for a, a king to come to topple Rome. They wanted, they wanted to establish this, this earthly kingdom, and that's what the Pharisees wanted. The, the Herodians, though, they, they were these this is Jewish political party that were sympathizers with Rome, with the Herodian dynasty. They, they would have been seen in, in, the, in the Pharisees' eyes almost as traitors, and yet the Pharisees' hatred for Jesus caused them to band together with their enemies to plot his downfall. Yet this doesn't stop Jesus in, in every encounter that he has with these religious leaders where they're trying to test him, where they're trying to trip him up, where they're trying to get him confused so they can levy accusations against him. They always walk away from those encounters looking foolish. The first half of Mark concludes then in chapter 8 with a, a clear confession by Peter on the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Jesus asks his disciples in Mark 8, if you remember, he asks these, this question to them. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? You've, you've been with me now, brothers, for, for a couple years. Who are people saying that I am? And their initial answer to that question shows even the confusion that people still had with who Jesus was. They say, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah or, or one of the prophets. Come back to life. But Jesus looks at his disciples and says, but, but who do you say that I am? You've been with me. You've been with me. You've seen what I've done. You've heard my teaching. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. There we are, top of the mountain. A clear view clear identity of who Jesus is. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah, right? You're the one that scriptures have been speaking about. You're the one that, that's been foretold who would come and establish a, a heavenly kingdom, one that would never end, that would continue on forever and ever. You're the one who's been sent to redeem and restore humanity, to establish your reign and rule over all the earth. This is the one. You're the one, Jesus in his proclamation, in his confession of 
You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one who's come to put sin to death, to reign and rule. But sin will be put to death. See, even they still didn't clearly understand. They didn't understand that, that his reign and his rule and that sin would be put to death and the kingdom established would be all taking place through Jesus' death, which is why then from that point forward in Mark 8, Jesus begins to speak of his impending suffering, his impending death, his resurrection, his kingdom. That's what we see in Jesus as we move forward in Mark 8 and from this point forward. And in Mark 8, he then looks to his disciples and calls on them to discipleship. Follow me. And here's what this looks like. And Jesus uses strong language at the end of Mark chapter 8 for anyone who would come after me. If anyone would come after me. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, this is a call here to radical abandonment of the things of this world. I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, I'm the King. Come follow me as we further and advance the kingdom of God. But this is what it looks like. Let go of the things of this world. Let go of the things that you want to hold tightly to and come follow me. Let go of it all. Again, even think back to Mark 3. Who is my mother and my brother and my sister? Jesus says it's the one who does the will of God. Meaning our our earthly relationships even come under the reign of Christ. He is supreme. He is uppermost in our thoughts and our affections. That that nothing comes before our love and devotion of Jesus. Then we get to Mark 9. Following this call to discipleship, Jesus says, Okay, and here's what now this looks like as you follow me. You need to be putting sin to death. Put sin to death. If your hand causes you to sin, you cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, you pluck it out. Listen, you are the salt of the earth. You're seeking by God's grace to further God's kingdom, advance God's kingdom. And we're doing so through a countercultural way of life that looks different but reveals Jesus as the true and rightful king of the world. So in essence, the gospel of Mark is really about revealing Jesus as king and, our, and then our call then to abandon everything to follow this king. That's true discipleship, which takes us here to Mark 10, this teaching on, on marriage and divorce. So I began this week by asking a question, why? Why is this text here? What is, what is Mark's intention for, for placing this this interaction between Jesus, the Pharisees, and his disciples, where he has it. Why, why here, after this, this, this text in Mark 9 of this radical call to put sin to death and abandon all things of the world and come follow me, what is Mark seeking to teach here? What's the intention here? What's the point of this passage? Here's what I wrote down. I, I wrote down that Jesus here is lifting up high the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage, which is created by God, is a picture of the gospel. And then that the call to radical abandonment of earthly things to pursue Christ and his kingdom does not include one's spouse, but rather that in marriage, Christ and his kingdom are pursued together in lifelong covenant as one flesh. So we're going to touch here this morning on on the topics of marriage and divorce. I'm going to hit briefly remarriage. And we're going to talk about discipleship today because I think that's the context of what Mark is trying to get across. What does marriage look like in the context of radical abandonment of true discipleship of Christ? 
And so I fully understand that these are weighty topics. I fully understand and know that some in here have come from, from broken homes, that some in here have walked through divorce yourself, that, and that you're, that you're talking, and, and that, that even us even just making mention of this and talking and walking through this this morning brings up for someone here some really hard memories that you're like, I'd just rather move on from this. I don't want to be bringing this back up again, the pain that you've walked through in your past. So I want you to know how much I've been praying for you all this week and that God's grace would be poured out as we hear what God, what Jesus has to say. I've prayed that we would simply stick to the text and that we'd hear what God has to say regarding marriage and divorce, knowing, again, that what he's saying is for our good. And that ultimately our hearts should be encouraged and would, that our hearts would be encouraged in the gospel. In a God who loves us unconditionally. And that regardless of your past, wherever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're bringing to the table here this morning, that there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is mercy, there is comfort for all. So let's, let's get to work, and we're going to just simply walk through the text together this morning. Now, we may be tempted uh, to think that, that divorce specifically has really only become a major issue in the, in, in the world, and specifically even within our culture, maybe within the last several decades. But the text clearly reveals that, that divorce was a, was a major issue back in even a highly, highly religious culture. And so the Pharisees, they believed that, that divorce should be granted for, for any type of indecency. Any type of indecency, divorce could be and should be granted. That was actually the majority view of most uh, uh, Jewish rabbis at that time. But there was another school of, of thought among other Jewish rabbis, among other Jewish people, though it was a, a minority view, that, that divorce could be granted only upon the grounds of adultery or sexual immorality. So, so the allowance or the permittance of divorce was not even here the issue at hand that they were debating with one another. It was the grounds for it that was all often hotly debated. So the Pharisees landed on, again, like I said, anything. Anything that displeased the husband in that day could be grounds for divorce. That's what they taught. That's what they believed. So uh, even a spoiled meal, the wife's refusal of the husband's control, not liking her behavior, or really whatever could be grounds for divorce as the Pharisees saw it. And they wanted it to remain that way. They, they would believe and they would argue that this was commanded in, in the law of Moses. So, so this is the context into which the, the first two verses are, are found. So, so we know that the, that the Pharisees were attempting right, to, to find ways to trip Jesus up. Right? They were looking for ways to test him so that they might, again, levy charges or accusations. You're not following the law of Moses. So they're looking for ways to destroy him. They're trying to find ways in which Jesus was violating their interpretation of the law of Moses. And Jesus is once again going to just rattle and shake up their world and actually draw them to the true meaning and tension of the law of Moses, the text itself. See, really what we're going to see here as we journey through Mark 10, even as we go through the rest of the chapter over the next few weeks, is this contrast between what the world values and what God values. And so when it comes to the issue of marriage, we're going to ask this question this morning. What does God value? What does God value? So I have three points for us this morning. First thing that we see that God values in regard to marriage is that he values glad obedience instead of sneaky loopholes. So, so the Pharisees, as, as you see in the first couple of verses, they're, want to, they're wanting to enter into this debate, this argument with Jesus on the, on the legality 
of divorce or the ways in which husbands could get out of their marriage covenants. So Jesus instead, though, as you watch him and how he talks, he, he know, he's like, no, I'm not going to talk about that. We're going to actually talk about God's beautiful design for marriage. God's beautiful design for a lifelong covenantal marriage and the good that it brings about in our lives and in the lives of those around us. He says, no, I'm gonna, I want to draw your attention to the effects of a godly marriage and that it furthers and advances the kingdom of God. See, the Pharisees ask in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus asks them, okay, what's, what did Moses command you? So he's wanting to draw them back. Okay, what, what do you think Moses said? So he said, well, Moses allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Well, in them saying that, they're referring back to Deuteronomy 24. The first few four verses say this, that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and The latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, it's important for us. Jesus is drawing them to this text. He knows that's what they're referring to, but they're misunderstanding what Moses' intention was here. It's important to note here that Moses is not commanding, nor is he even necessarily permitting easy divorce of a spouse. Instead, what we see Moses doing is acknowledging that divorce happens, that divorce takes place because of the sinfulness and the hard-heartedness of human beings, and that Moses sees this And that it knows that it needs to be regulated, especially so that the innocent party, the offended party in the divorce, is protected. See, Jesus affirms this, which is why he says in verse 5, no, it's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote this commandment. So what's he saying when Jesus says it's because of the hardness of your heart? He's saying, you guys, you're always looking for ways around God's design. You're always looking for ways around God's law, around what God has established and created. You're you're always looking for outs or or loopholes, as if there are any loopholes with God. He's saying Moses was was recognizing the the, the depravity of the human heart, the brokenness in life, which which was caused by sin and how husbands were abusing and mistreating their wives by divorcing them and sending them away for, for anything that displeased them. And so Moses was seeking to regulate this and so protect the innocent spouse from any more abuse or mistreatment. See, what God desires is is glad obedience to how he's called us to live and how he's designed marriage to work, not not looking for ways out of it or around it. Remember, discipleship involves glad submission to Jesus as Lord. So so what's Jesus do? He he takes them to Genesis. Takes them to Genesis. Who was Genesis? Or what was Genesis written by? It was written by Moses. It's written by Moses, the one they're exalting and lifting up. He takes them to Genesis to show them, no, I'm going to show you God's design for human flourishing, specifically within the context of marriage. So here's what he says in, in verses 6 through 9. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore... 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So this leads us to our second point this morning. What does God value within marriage? Well, his design is this. His design for marriage is a lifelong covenant. Lifelong covenant instead of a temporary contract. There's four things that we see in what Jesus says in God's design of marriage as he takes them back to Genesis 1. We see four things. Number one, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Secondly, we see that marriage is the establishment of a new home, a new family. Thirdly, we see that marriage is unifying. He says it's one flesh. I love how Ray Ortland puts it in his book on marriage. He says that one flesh is the biblical definition of marriage in two brief but freighted words. The expression names marriage as one mortal life fully shared. The word one speaks of a life fully shared, and the word flesh suggests the transient mortality of this life. So in the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and a woman fall away, and the married couple comes together completely, as long as they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us, building a new life together with one total everything, one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. Marriage is unifying. It's one flesh, Jesus says. Fourthly, we see that marriage is God's idea and intended to be lifelong. So to quote Ortland one more time, he says that marriage did not arise from historical forces. It came down by heavenly grace as a permanent good for mankind. God gave it and God gives it. It was and it is his to define. So what we see collectively from, from God's word then is that marriage is a, is a reflection of the gospel. It's a reflection of the gospel. The way a husband loves his wife, the way a wife submits to the loving leadership of her husband, the, a marriage is to display Christ's love for his church, his bride. In Ephesians 5, the apostle Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives. So as I just said, husbands are commanded by Paul from God's word to love their wives just like Jesus loves the church. Wives are commanded or called to then submit to their husbands just as the church submits to Christ. When we see marriage this way as, as, as how God intended it to be, as how he designed it and what the implications of a, a marriage display to a watching world, we can see why marriage then must be lifted up and exalted, why, why marriage must be guarded and why Jesus gives such significance to it. That's not something that we just easily throw away. It's not something to get around. It's not something to be mistreated. It's not something to be treated lightly. When husbands fail to love their wives or when wives fail to follow the loving leadership of their husbands, we damage the reputation of the gospel of Christ himself. But the world often views marriage as, a, as, as nothing more than a contractual agreement, meaning that, that both are committed as long as the other party lives up to their end of the bargain. But as soon as, as soon as I'm not happy, as soon as I grow bored, or as soon as I uh, perceive that you're not meeting my needs as I perceive them and as I see them and think that you should meet them, then, then usually the world's message is, then you deserve to be happy. Get out. Go find something else. Jesus gives us though, a different view, though, on marriage. That marriage is a, is a covenant Meaning whether things go really good or really bad, it's this idea that I'm not going anywhere. 
That's, that's the mindset that we should have when we're entering into marriage. Like whether it goes good or bad, I'm, I'm in. What do husbands and wives say to one another on their wedding day? They, as they exchange vows to one another before God and witnesses, they say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are separated by death. See, in marriage, God is joining two souls together for their good and for the good and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Two souls united together for life to follow after Christ together as his disciples, reflecting the love of Jesus that he has for his bride. Since this is true, since this is a biblical picture of what marriage is, then we, then we can see why, why marriage must be fought for. That, that it needs to be fought for when, when difficulty comes, when suffering comes, when hard days come, and they do come. Which leads us then to the final point today. That what, what God values is that through suffering and hardship that, that his design, his intention is that we would, we would value biblical restoration instead of easy escapism. Now this is the one point that I knew was going to maybe ruffle feathers and so I want to unpack this in a hopefully a very gentle way and explain what I mean by that. But the text I use for this is verses 10 through 12. It says in the house, this is after Jesus has his interaction with the, uh, with the Pharisees. So later on in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That's all that's said there. It's kind of just like a a, a mic drop moment, but it's kind of like, man, there's a lot of follow-up here. And so I recognize that those verses there, that's a hard statement. That's a hard statement. And and, and I recognize as well, like I I don't come from a divorced family. My wife doesn't come from a divorced family. So, so I personally have, have never experienced the, the pain that divorce brings. I, I've never fully experienced the, the, the pain that unhealthy marriages produce. But I've walked through it enough with people who are walking through it and going through it to, to know how difficult divorce and unhealthiness in marriage is. John Piper maybe explains the pain best when he says that divorce is usually dirty pain. And what he means by that is, is it lingers. It, it, it continues. It's messy. It's, it's not a, a clean cut. It's, it's just there. And so I don't use the phrase easy escapism in a way to offend anybody. I really don't. Some of you in here have endured incredibly difficult and painful marriages which have resulted in divorce. And so I don't want you to be thinking that I don't recognize that and that, that you just were wanting, you're just wanting to find an easy way out. That's not what I actually mean when I, when I wrote this, this point here. What I'm referring to, though, is the, often the nonchalant attitude our world often treats marriage with. So rather than seeking restoration and reconciliation by God's grace, sometimes it's like, well, it's, just, it's simpler maybe to just leave. Now understand, if you've walked through it, you're like, none of those situations were easy, and I get it. Both were hard decisions, either seeking to fight for the marriage and, and pursue restoration or to, to, to leave. I get that that decision was difficult as well. So it's, it's, it's really the, the, the choice then that the world gives us of what's, what's the, the simplest, though, of the, the options before us. But God doesn't call us to easy things. He doesn't call us to easy things. He calls us to difficult things. But he promises his grace and his presence through it. Some of you in here this morning might be going through, in the, I mean, just in the furnace right now in your marriage. It may be the most unhealthy thing in your life right now. 
And it might be something you're hiding that no one really knows about. You may not be seeing in your marriage right now any future, any hope, any light ahead. But what I want to call you to is, is hope in the power of the gospel. Hope in the power of Christ. That restoration, though it's not easy for those who are, who are walking through it and pursuing it, but for those who are willing to submit to God's word and to cling to it and put the other person ahead of themselves, they can find joy ahead. And so come ask for help. Invite brothers and sisters that you love and trust into the battle with you. Pray for God's grace. Let's fight with you for a hope and joy that can come through Jesus. We believe that. We see from Jesus' own words the importance of marriage and the devastation and pain that divorce brings. What, what Mark's intention here, I believe, in this text was to show that this is what discipleship looks like in a marriage context, right? That, that there's, there's no, there's no um, uh, thinking in our minds that, that we want out of it. We, we are not abandoning our spouse. We're clinging to our spouse, one flesh, pursuing Christ for the good of his kingdom, the advancement of the, of the kingdom. But at the same time, I want to do it, uh, maybe as we close here, as we begin to wrap up here, I do want to address, though, there are biblical grounds for divorce, I think it's important to, to, to mention this and to walk through this as well. Jay Adams, a, a well-known biblical counselor, says this, that divorce is always the result of sin, but divorce is not necessarily always sinful. I'll say that again. He says divorce is always the result of sin. Okay, so divorce is always taking place because of sin in, in either both spouses' lives or in one of their lives. Like, so divorce is always going to be the result of sin, but divorce is not necessarily always sinful, meaning that, that though Scripture never condones divorce, it does recognize its reality, and, and there are, I believe, biblical grounds for it. So Mark 10 parallels Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, Jesus says the same thing, but Matthew adds this exception clause that Jesus said. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we see here an exception clause that Jesus added to his statement, meaning that if there is marital unfaithfulness, if there is sexual immorality by one of the spouses, they have broken the marriage covenant and the offended spouse is free to pursue divorce. Now I would still add divorce here is not commanded. Nowhere in scripture does, does God command you must be divorced. God hates divorce, Malachi 2 says. Biblical restoration should still be sought after if possible. But divorce in this case, according to Scripture, is allowed. We also know in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7 that divorce is allowed if you're married to an unbelieving spouse and they want to pursue divorce. So in 1 Corinthians 7.15 it says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, but God has called you to peace. Now, I didn't read the, 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 the verses before that, and he does a lot of explanation on marriage and, and what it looks like as uh, one, one spouse is a believer, one's an unbeliever. How does that interact? What do we do? So um, I'm going to paraphrase this because we don't have time to, to read through the whole text. But if, for instance, uh, the husband were an unbeliever in a marriage and a wife was a believer, but both want to remain in the marriage, then the believing spouse should not pursue divorce even though they're married to an unbeliever, Paul says. 
It's only when the unbelieving spouse wants to separate that the other is then set free from the bonds of marriage. That's what verse 15 of chapter 7 is talking about. Now, in both these cases, whether it's marital unfaithfulness or abandonment from an unbelieving spouse, this is my belief from Scripture, though there are those who would disagree with this, but I believe the offended spouse is free to remarry. In other situations, though, meaning that if divorce happened not on biblical grounds, where unfaithfulness or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse was not the cause or the reason for a divorce, then Scripture would then teach that you should remain uh, unmarried. You should not remarry. In fact, if possible, Scripture would call you to to restoration with your ex-husband, with your ex-wife. This is the thrust, I believe, of Jesus' statement here at the end of our passage. He's speaking of divorce that's not biblically justified or allowed. To remarry in that case, as Jesus says, is to commit adultery. So, as we close here this morning, church, I love you, okay? I love you. Passages like this one are not easy ones. These are passages that make me nervous, because I, I, I so badly want to stick to the text. I want to preach what Jesus says. But no, I, I like to appease people. I like people to like me. Uh, and so this is sometimes hard. I'm like, man, some people are going to probably go back and forth on this one. So I love you. And I understand the difficulty of this. I understand the emotion and pain can take over when we let our feelings drive us rather than listening to and submitting to God's word, his truth as revealed to us in his word. I've tried as best as I can by God's grace and his spirit to be word-centered, word-focused today. So anything I've said, I want to say, but Scripture says this. Scripture says this. Let's go back to this. But, but I want to leave you guys with just a few points of application as we walk through this. This, is, uh, this has been the difficulty, right? Trying to hit things from a 30,000-foot view. And I kind of want to, as we, as we land here, I want to try and take things maybe a little bit closer to the ground because I understand there's different scenarios that you might, okay, what about this scenario, this situation? I'm not going to be able to cover them all. And so this is where we, we embrace one another as a church and let's walk through these things together. But here's a few different maybe on-the-ground applications or things to think through as we consider this text. I realize that topics like this one often need more time to work through. Um, like I've said, I've hit this from a high level today. Uh, so if you're working through this, let's, let's sit down over coffee. Let's open up God's Word. That's the only thing I'm going to ask. Bring your Bible. All right, so we're going to go through this. It's not a debate of opinions. We've got to be centered on the word. But if you're like, I'm kind of wrestling through this. I don't know if I quite agree or disagree. Okay, I want to learn more about it. Let's, let's grab coffee. Grab one of the other elders. One of the other, like, let's work through this together. But we're going to be centered on God's word. Um, if, you're, if you're struggling in your marriage today, let us, by God's grace, walk with you through it. Please, please let us walk with you through it. You should not have to go through it alone. In fact, you shouldn't go through it alone. All right, let us serve you and your spouse. We fully believe that when we submit to God's word and we both seek to do what it teaches, that we'll find joy and peace. That's then that what Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? Uh, the, 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 the wise man, the foolish man. The wise man is the one who builds his house on the rock, meaning he hears the teaching of Jesus and does it, right? So when the storm comes, they still stand firm. So that's why we believe that if we submit to God's word and we say, I know it's hard, I know he's asking me to do it's difficult, I know my flesh doesn't want to submit to that, but we believe if we do, if both parties do, you'll be able to weather that storm because Jesus promises that you can. So if you're struggling today, please come seek one of us out and let's walk through things together. Um, if you've gone through divorce, and maybe today you heard for the first time that your, your divorce in your past was not based on biblical grounds, then here's hope for you today. We, we repent and you rest in the, in the gospel of Christ, right? You're, you're not an outcast. 
right? If, if you're in Christ, you're his son, you're his daughter, right? Rest in that hope. Christ came to pay for all of our debt. We sung it today, didn't we? All my pain, all my debt, all my sin has been paid for. Rest in that hope. If there's a possibility of restoration with your ex-spouse, meaning that they have not remarried, then consider praying for restoration of that marriage once again. Uh, if you were divorced on unbiblical grounds and, you're, and you are remarried, right, the same word is, is, is here for you. Re- repent of that, and, but then rest in God's grace. Right? So if you're thinking like, okay, what, what do I do? I, I, I wasn't divorced on biblical grounds. I'm remarried. Okay, don't pursue divorce with your current spouse, but instead strive by God's grace to have your marriage, your current marriage, reflect the gospel. Um, if God has called you to singleness, praise God for that. It's a good thing. Scripture commends singleness. It's not a negative thing at all. Rest in God's grace. Rest in the sufficiency of Christ. He's all you need. And live your life for the glory of God and the furtherance of the kingdom. Um, In in church, I'll address this all here. We do not shame those who have been divorced. We do not shame those who have been divorced. If they're free in Christ and forgiven, right, through through faith in the work uh, and death and resurrection of Jesus, then we rejoice with them in the hope of the gospel. All right? We're all in need of grace. We're all in need of forgiveness. I love how Kent Hughes says it. We must exercise our dealings with those who have fallen, realizing that all of us are adulterers in heart. We must endeavor to share the suffering of those ravaged by divorce, and we must not call unclean what, that which God has called clean. In all of this, though, let's hold fast, high. Let's hold high the institution of marriage. Marriage is a good gift given to us by a good God, to reflect a good gospel and to advance the kingdom of God as we, as we pursue one-fleshed discipleship to make much of Christ in the world today that needs it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your spirit to, to move amongst us, to work amongst us, to, uh, to bring to realization the authority of your word. God, to, to have it bear weight on our minds and our lives God, I, I understand and I know the pain that some have walked in. I understand and know the pain that some are currently walking through. And so my hope here today, my intention here today was, was not to condemn, but, but to lay, lay forth the, the, the good design of marriage and, and the hope of the gospel, the hope of forgiveness, the, the, the goodness and the, the, the hope of grace. And so, God, where, wherever we may be in, in this in this place this morning. I pray that our eyes have been turned to you. I, I, God, protect us from trying to find roundabouts, trying to find loopholes, trying to find the, but what about, God, I, I just pray that we would just go to your word and listen to you. God, don't let our emotions drive our thinking. Don't let, never let our culture drive our thinking. May we be driven by your word here. God, where we fall short, may we repent of it. And we find forgiveness in the fact that, well, Ephesians says that, that those who belong to you, they are blameless in your sight. And so, God, may we rest in that truth today that we are sons and daughters, that Christ came to redeem. He is the king. He is the Christ. God, I pray for those of us here in our marriages that they may reflect the gospel of Christ. I want to pray for husbands here this morning. 
God, that they would love their wives like Christ loved the church. And I know immediately when we hear that, our, our, our thoughts should, as husbands go to, by can't do that perfectly, which is why we need the gospel, which is why we need to look to the perfect husband, right? Jesus who loves the church perfectly. And then in that, may we then seek to pursue, to love our wives, to lay our lives down for the good of our wives. Father, I want to pray for the wives here this morning that they would, they would submit, as Ephesians 5 calls them to, to the loving leadership of a godly husband. That this isn't about dictatorship, it's not about having no voice, it's about modeling the, the way in which the church is to follow Jesus. And so God, I want to pray for our marriages here today, God, for the husbands and wives to reflect to a, a, a world in need of who Jesus is that we would advance the kingdom through our one flesh discipleship. God, I pray for the, our, our singles here this morning. God, so often, again, we, we, it's, like, it's like there's a devaluing of, of singleness. And so, God, may we, again, look to Scripture, not what culture, how culture views it, not how even sometimes within the church we viewed singleness. But the scripture, scripture lives high singleness. As, as, as people who are really free to, to, to live on mission for the gospel, and so, God, I pray that we would commend those that are single in here. And that maybe there's some that are struggling with singleness. God, would, would they find sufficiency in you? God, so there's so much here. We could spend the next 20 minutes praying together through all these things. But you know our hearts. You know where we're wrestling. You know where we're struggling. And so, God, we just want to turn our eyes to Christ right now and say it's you. And it's only you that, that we need. And so, God, in our singing now as we, as we hold high the, the, the sufficiency of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and our inefficiency, may we cling and hold tightly to, to your life, your death, resurrection, for our good, your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.